I'm feeling great. And I think it's because I had lunch and I think that makes a really big difference. I've conquered postcodes, so we're all good. Simon has conquered postcodes. Uh, Try and interpret that one if you can. Welcome to another Happy Pricing podcast without Ben Johnson, who's still on holiday hiding behind a bush in Greece somewhere. So because I don't like being on my own, uh, I have brought along two playmates, uh, Simon and Francis from the Better Boulder Braver community. We are going to be talking today about this idea of a pricing philosophy. It was brought to my attention by Francis, and it was a post, or from a post by Derek Sivers. I thought we'd I'll talk through what Derek Sivers wrote, just briefly, and then we're going to have a bit of a, an emergent conversation around our opinions about what it means to have a pricing philosophy, and Simon and Francis have their own um, sort of stances on this, and given what they would do in terms of helping coaches market themselves with more confidence and what that means in terms of our attitudes to pricing. And I'll share philosophy or perspective from the Happy Startup School, uh, and hopefully we'll come to some conclusions that will help you if you are struggling with pricing or thinking about pricing and wanting to get paid your your worth and what that and even if wondering what that means maybe we can touch on that so to begin with this post i think it was called pricing philosophy and it was based on a story when derek sivers was in college he used to play music and he was invited to play at another college which was 12 hours away uh, and he was asked for his rates, and he said it was $1,500 for a two-hour set. And so, of course, the person who was asking about the price said, oh, that's a bit much. How much would you charge for one hour? With a chill course, you'd think it's going to be $750. He said, actually, it's going to cost $2,000. And that caused a bit of cognitive dissonance, I would assume, in the person, thinking, oh, well, whether I'm getting less, but I'm paying more. What does that mean? And this is where Derek Sivers goes into this whole idea of a pricing philosophy. And his story, and this is going to be about stories, was that he enjoys music. You know, he would love to play for two hours for them. What they're paying for is the fact that he has to travel 12 hours or 24 hours there and back in order to play. And so if he's only going to play one hour, he's going to have to be compensated for that trip that means the loss of enjoyment for him. So he's going to charge them $2,000. For the, for the boundaries that he's going to have to push in order to make that happen for them. And so they settled on $1,500, which was a price, according to the person who was asking, was a bit too much. But then it made sense to them. And so he got what he needed. He got paid his worth. They were happy paying that money. All good. I was just um, marvelling at the beautiful quality of confidence and sort of being able to live for quite a long time before you die, aware of what it is that your whole life has been about, um, and the bliss that is being at a point where you can just really calmly and confidently articulate what it is that you live for in such a way that it just doesn't really demand too much debate. And someone is just, the resolve in that is, and the clarity in that is just so wonderful and is something that I think we can all we should all aspire to. Perception of value is what it was all about for me. So rather than challenging, it was just changing the perception of value in from one person to another. And I think a lot of the sort of stuff we talk about, particularly with pricing, is just all about perception of value. 
Great. Okay. So there's theme, there's two themes here that we immediately could start talking about. One is what I'm hearing from Francis, this idea of confidence and the confidence with which you present yourself or present your prices or, or back up your prices. And then there's this other thing of like I, the perception of value. What, what is value here? What, what, am I, what am I buying? Why am I paying this much money for something? And which is a curious one with this example, because um, it's clearly, well, maybe that's something we can talk about, what we can assume this person was buying um, and why they were paying that much money and why they were prepared to pay uh, a sum of money that they initially thought was a lot and they could fall back on. Um, but maybe we start off with the confidence thing um, and the importance of confidence because you know one of the things i remember in my agency days that um when we would complain that we weren't being profitable enough making enough money is like oh you should just double your rates it's like huh? how would you do that like how do i justify doubling my rates and for me there was this thing about you know being able to confidently do that but what does it take to be able to be confident just to do that i think this is where we we segue from you know Simon and I and you and Ben uh, there's some healthy friction in our approach so when I talk about confidence what I don't like the idea of is someone drinking a load of Red Bull and sort of having someone punch them in the tummy going like this before they go on stage and then be like double my price double my price you know that's the kind of confidence that really worries me when I'm talking about confidence, it's it's really the clarity thing about um, being quite clear that what you have is what someone else needs and being able to gift to them a story that will be meaningful um, so that they can understand. So there's first the respect for yourself, the dignity, the confidence that you want to be doing this work, that it's right for you. And then it's the confidence to deliver something that's going to land with someone because it's what they need. Not just the kind of arbitrary ego doubling thing that's like double the money because why the fuck not? You know, so that's and, and that's the thing I get a little bit anxious about. And that's what sometimes we have healthy. Uh, I think we get to a kind of healthy point of um, tension around. Well, I think confidence really stems from where you are starting your pricing conversation. So if you are starting the conversation from a position of power, i.e. person selling, so the person with the knowledge, then your perception of the value is clear to you. And therefore, it's easy to be confident that you are delivering something of value in your work. But it's also easy to then doubt yourself that, that that perception of value is being seen by the other person. So a lot of the work, I think, in pricing is not really about the number on the price, really. For me, it comes down to the creating that perception of value and therefore what price you can put against the value that seems like a fair exchange. So to me, the confidence is, as Francis was saying, it's not about just arbitrarily going, oh, it's 10 grand. And then someone going, well, that's a lot. And you're like, well, yeah, is it? <laughs> you know, or just being like bullshit with it. It's like, if you feel that the value that you can exchange at a certain price 
makes that balance for both you and the person buying, then in my mind, you're that adds to the confidence and you can build on that. So it may be that you do something the first time and then you think, oh, do you know what? This isn't actually working for me financially. I need to double the price because if I don't double the price, I can't afford to do it. Or well, if I double the price, I can hire a nicer room and then people will be more engaged and they'll get more out of it. And then it's just that conversation you can have. So confidence to me is about opening the conversation about the value exchange that you're about to embark on. Yeah, and the, the thing that's coming up for me now in terms of this um, healthy friction, I think you said, Francis, around this idea of confidence. Anya was mentioning it here, the difference between, I was going to say aggressive confidence, and she calls it bravado, and healthy, self, healthy self-worth, which I feel is like a more kind of passive confidence. There's a grounded confidence. And I don't want to say there's a black or white here, because I think there is something around some people know that they're doing really good work and it's really important work, but they just need that bravado to be able to express themselves because of some other issues around self-worth. And there's a, there's a, there's a balance here, I think, between knowing that you have something valuable, but then also tying your self-worth to whether that outcome is created or not. So there's this uncertainty that the customer will actually be happy with the outcome. And if they're not happy, how's that going to make you feel? And you suddenly think, oh, I don't want the risk of disappointing someone. So there's a something about actually, how do you push through that? And then there's that real knowledge of, I've done this a million times. I know exactly how this is going to turn out. I have, you know, I've, I've experienced this enough to know that this is good stuff. And so I, I definitely agree that there is something here around the, the, the right type of confidence is a ground i'm going to say grounded confidence and i know that this is good but it's not i think the the interesting thing about this in terms of pricing and you talk about value is like i might know that this is amazing stuff but it's only going to be valuable to certain people and so there's this aspect here when i think of the derek sivers story around I'm going to call them, I'm going to talk about maybe the boundaries aspect of that. It's like, I don't get out of bed for less than $1,500. I'm sorry, full stop. That's the confidence I have. Well, it's not even the confidence. It's like, it's the confidence in terms of the boundaries, the confidence I have in my boundaries. It's like, I don't want to do this unless it's this much money, full stop. And that's less about whether this is fair or not, you know, whether it's, you know, it's up to you to decide whether it's a value in inverted commas. And then there's the story about, okay, what does this work mean to me? So there's confidence in the calculation and then there's confidence in the delivery. And I think it's important that we are clear that we're talking about two different things. Um, and it might be then that we agree that we are in agreement. Um, so the confidence in the calculation is the opposite of arbitrary doubling. Confidence in calculation is what we spend the first month we're going to be spending the first month with the coaches that are taking our Creating Conversations group program uh, working on. And it's the, it's what Simon talked about, which it's the, it's the sort of how much money do you need to earn to make your business survive? What's your work-work balance? Do you have another stream of revenue? How have you worked out the value of the service that you deliver to the person that you'd like to work with because it energizes you? 
Um, so what does a price that makes sense actually look like? And, and are you confident in the calculation? Because if you just double, then you will not be going into pricing conversations with real confidence about why you are spinning that story. So there's that confidence in the uh, calculation. And out of that comes the confidence in delivery. And the confidence in delivery is also about being able to be articulate, is the body language, is the clarity when you're niching. And you have worked out behind the scenes why it is that you price the thing that you price, what it is that you won't get out of bed for. And then the clarity and confidence in delivery is being able to explain the why to the people that you care about. I, I think Francis has sort of hit that nail on the head, which is the, the delivery of it is, is the bit that we feel. And it's the bit that really is what puts people off and makes people feel awkward about price. If we get coaches in a room, Zoom room, and we talk about pricing, we can all have a conversation openly and everyone's fine. They can get their calculators out and everyone can come up with the numbers and it's fine. So to me, it's the costs and the accounting bit and the numbers is, is the easy bit of pricing. The really difficult bit is trying to convey the value because you can set a price that you would like to exchange your value for. And it, the only person who gets to decide whether that's right is the client. And if they say no, then all they're saying to you is you've not got those, that balance right yet. So one of the best things I got taught from a sales coach once was someone who says no is just saying, I don't understand. Help me understand more. If they say I can't afford it, they're just saying I'm not ready to commit yet. And it may be that they're never going to be ready to commit because they can never make that balance. But no is just an opportunity to have a different conversation or to help them understand it further. And I think part of what is important in pricing is getting no. I think that's a really important bit. And when we were working with this sales coach a few years ago, he challenged us to go out and get 10 no's. He's like, write the next five or 10 proposals and price them so insanely high that people say no, because I just want you to be on a call where someone says no to you. And we did it. And it's really odd. It's a horrible feeling to get, but you suddenly get used to the fact that people just say no. When the price is silly high, they just say no. But then when you set the price and you think you've got that value balance right, you just feel so much better about it, but it's just that experience of being like, you've got to, you have to have no's to make the yeses feel more, I don't know, I, I don't want to use the word authentic, but it just feels better to have that conversation once you know that, yeah, someone might say no to me and that's okay. The phrase that's springing to mind there was aversion therapy. It's like, how do you expose yourself to the thing that you dread most enough so it doesn't feel so painful? So that, that's, that. That makes sense mm. to me. However, it's that fee I think this is the thing around confidence and nose, like the way we got here, because it is, I think, one of the challenges for a lot of people is that fear of the no. And then to be able to present ourselves with confidence despite that fear of the no. And so I'm linking this to pricing philosophy because when I think of a pricing philosophy, it's an underlying set of beliefs or guidelines that you hold on to really closely, is very important to you, that backs up why you have a certain price. 
And so it's something you can fall back on, you can draw strength from when you are in a position of someone saying no, which is what happened in the story, as I understand it. I'm just uh, remembering an experience that Simon and I have had recently where someone booked a call with us to come onto our programme. And I ended up saying to her, you're not coming on the programme because she is not going to be able to get out of it what we need, what we want for her. She's not, she can do the next one. She's not doing this one. And when you get to a point of confidence in what you have uh, to give, and who it is that you need to be giving it to, it stops even being about price. What you want is to be able to move on from the price. The price is an incidental thing that, you know, is just part of the flow of the conversation. And, you know, you also need to be able to show your workings. And the other thing that Simon and I do is we have a, a slide which tells stories about the price. And we have a we have a slide in our in our brochure which says here's how this price relates to where you're at and the kind of things that you're going to be doing and you know it's a it's a cute marketing little technique but it's also just like here's here's how we've come to this price do you know it's like here's how we've come to this price for you and you know the price works for us and we kind of. Like, we're pretty ambivalent about it. We don't need to dwell on it and have, like, endless conversations about what the value is because we've made it clear. So we want to get to the juicy stuff, which is, like, what are you going to do? And, and like, I don't know. Uh, I just think it, it, the more confident you are about, again, who you want to work with, why, what the price is, the, the quicker you can say, not for you now, yes for you now. And you can have fun with it. And we had another really fun conversation recently with someone who was, sort of not sure they wanted to do the programme. And I said, to, I said to them, I think 80% of what you're saying is right. And there's 20% of it, which doesn't make any sense at all. And it was fun. And we all had a laugh. And there's this kind of ambivalence to it. As Simon says, you're like, I don't love the idea of like self-flagellating by aversion therapy, as you called it. <laughs> I can think of better ways personally to advance emotionally than inviting a load of abuse just for the sake that I might be better, I might fare better next time I'm um, faced with violence or something. But, you know, I, I, I get the point. Yeah, but I think, I, think, I think you're taking it a little bit too literally in the sense that a no is not the end of the conversation, it's the beginning of the next bit. So getting intentionally starting a conversation with the aim of getting a no just gets you practice in where you go with that conversation. Because I think a lot of people don't know what to do next. And there's a couple of things, like there's that thing, I come from years ago with, with, with the guy who did the fail Olympics. And he essentially tried to get someone to say no to him every day. So he'd just go into like a coffee shop and say, oh, hey, can I get a 10% discount? And they'd be like, no. They'd be like, oh, okay. And then just carry on with his day. But someone said no, and he got let down. But then like one day he went in and he's like, Hey, like my favorite number, he went into a donut shop and he's like, my favorite number is number eight. So could I get like two donuts joined together as a number eight? And they were like, yeah, yeah, I can do that. And he's like, cool. And he's like, no one's ever asked that. I'll just, I'll just do it for one donut. And he's like, oh, okay, it works. But like, because he had the confidence to go in and ask a silly question, it's not necessarily that you need to have someone like shower you for 10 minutes and 
have just, you know, absolutely destroy you for your quote. It's more just open the conversation, knowing that no is an option. Then you get used to essentially coaching people back from no. And I think there's, there's a, some really interesting ideas and techniques in, um, the Chris Voss book, Never Split the Difference. He, he was an, uh, FBI hostage negotiator. And it's unbelievable some of the stuff he's talking about where he's like, I've got a room full of people and there's an armed person in there. I've just got to talk to this person and see if I can get them out. And then, you know, he's like, obviously no is going to come up. So how do you deal with no? And he's got some really interesting techniques about making it personal and interesting and fun. Um, if anyone's on masterclass, he's also got, he also does the book as a masterclass. If you're on the masterclass app, um, which is really good, but, um, or just look up him talking about it, but some of his techniques for no is, is, is fascinating. I think there's a, there's a psychology, well, there's a lot of psychology in here. The way I'm looking at this idea of how working with the nose, what I would offer to anyone listening to this is if you're in this space where you are basically aiming low to avoid a no, then this is why you need to hear the no. Because you can't negotiate yourself up. Because they're going to say, yeah, of course I'm going to pay you 20 quid for this when actually you want 100 quid. If you then aim high or higher, at least you have some way, when you get the no, as Simon says, to work out why not. Why aren't you spending? And this is because they're not prepared to spend that money or there's something they don't understand. And that's when you can start having a conversation. So while receiving lots of no's can be demoralizing and, and disheartening, ultimately it's for people, I believe, who always aim low because you don't want to get the no. So if you want to get a yes that feels good for you and is acceptable to the other person, because no, no customer, you know, none of us want to spend more money than we need to, but we will spend money if it makes sense to us. And if it makes the supplier happy and it makes sense to us, then at least it's going to be a helpful transaction. In a conversation with a potential client, I want people to feel far more uncomfortable if they get off that call and they feel that they have undercharged than with the potential no. And I think in order to avoid the discomfort of having undercharged, it can really bode badly for a future, you know, coaching relationship. You, you want to go into that relationship with confidence, joy, and a real deep hope for the person that is working with you. And if you, if you come to the first session with a sense that you've undercharged, that's firstly going to compromise your future as a business, but it's also not ethically right. So you need to, you need to have uh, left off from that pricing conversation or that, that conversation where you onboard someone with a real sense of dignity, confidence, and um, conviction that what you have charged is, is what you need to be paid. And that feeling, those feelings are much more important for me than how good you are at dealing with a no. For me, there's something here around, again, these boundaries, these limits, this need for sustainability, not to just be there to help other people because you just like helping other people and then not helping yourself. And and that is not going to help people in the long run if you're not around because you can't put a roof over your head or you can't pay for your own food. There's something very important around that. Self-care. And it's interesting you brought up the ethical aspect of this as well. It's like if you're allowing people to take advantage of you because you don't have the confidence to charge your worth, 
or charge what they need to be paying because of the value it creates in their lives, then yeah, that doesn't feel fair either. I'd like to just see if we can put to bed this idea of a pricing philosophy by sharing maybe any thoughts that you'd offer a listener to help them create their own pricing philosophy. I love the idea that in any form of marketing, whether it's pricing, producing content, networking, that we are showing our best self and fostering in our potential client a confidence that they can follow us on this journey of confidence and joy. So we should use pricing alongside a lot of the other things in marketing to show our best self. And it forms part of, as I described it yesterday to one of our community members, our core folio of strength. Like it's a it's a meta message about why working with us is going to feel good. The way that we carry on in any interaction, including a pricing conversation, should foster in someone a sense of confidence in who we are. I think in a pricing philosophy, uh, mine would be around letting go of that kind of amount of time and effort you've put in to getting to where you've got so far. Um, not to say your experience or your knowledge or investment in yourself, but just in terms of, you know, if you spent X number of hours making something or it's going to take you X number of hours to deliver it, then actually that's of no consequence to the client. It doesn't make any difference to their end experience of it. So I think disconnecting your sort of time or sunk cost, if you see what I mean, from the value that you're trying to communicate is, is such a, uh, it, it frees you to think about value in a different way. So if you spend six hours delivering coaching, it doesn't mean you need to just work out an hourly rate and times it by six. It's you th- That's meaningless to the client, and it's meaningless to think of it in hourly rates because me- hourly rates don't aren't connected in any way to value. They're an exchange of time, and that's on an open market, and I can always find someone cheaper. So as soon as you disconnect time, from your value, then you're opening a really interesting conversation because it's like, well, I'll work together. We'll count this many sessions and include these things. And the value of that work is this. Whereas if it's like, oh, my sessions are 25 pounds an hour or 50 pounds an hour. And there's five of them. It's like, brilliant. That's fine. But I've got a coach around the corner for 4750. So it's fine. It's like, there's, there's no value in pricing per hour. It's an open market conversation which is always someone will do it cheaper. So I think the value disconnect would be my pricing philosophy. When I'm thinking about pricing philosophy, I'm now, I'm kind of like verging on this idea of a pricing manifesto, a personal pricing manifesto. It's your own set of beliefs. And so some key things that spring up for me, values alignment. I will only work with certain people. Not because I'm going to stop people, but this is what I believe in. These are the things that I believe in. And so there's an alignment that's needed to be created, and that's what is foundational to my pricing. I don't price based on time, I price based on value. And that's a core belief, I think, that you... What is that core belief for you that you incorporate in terms of your pricing? And then I, th- I think there's something here around your own wish for people. What is the wish that you have for people? What is that real deep desire to see what changes you want to see in the world. And some people, 
that change is meaningless. And for some people, it is the difference between life and death. And being able to incorporate that, I think, and I think it connects to what you guys do in terms of marketing, because it's like if we can infuse how we talk about our work with the way we also we talk about our prices, then there's a congruence and a clarity that removes some of the uncertainty that people may feel when they're just about to spend money with you. You might also like to think of a pricing conversation as you uh, sort of interviewing someone for the opportunity to work with you. It's not like you want to grill them, but Simon and I are very motivated because the people that we help are people helpers. So the effect that we can have on the world is greater because we're helping people who can help others. And you do it as well, Carlos. You only have capacity to take on one, two, maybe three one-to-one clients at any one time because you've got a lot going on. So it's important to you to be discerning about who it is that you take on. And when you communicate that, then you almost say to somebody, look, we're in the business of helping people help us. Why is it that you should be on this program? Why is it that you and I should do one-to-one work? It makes people really have to articulate the work that they want to do with you, which is essentially what we're all getting at when we talk about coaching someone through a sale. So I wanted to end up on, we have a couple of questions here, one from Anya and one from Nicola. So I hope you're both still here uh, to hear them live uh, and to accept or discard as you see fit. Um, So let's start off with Anya's question. Anya's asking, so what if you're offering more of a process than a specific outcome? And she says, this makes confidence trickier as you don't know what will arise for your client. Well, I think there, you don't necessarily have to know the end for the client, but you can articulate the value of where you start and then you can explain the process that follows. And by simply explaining, well, we start our work here and we think about and we do and we consider and we act on these things. Some of the places that that could end up are, and then you could say the thoughts, feelings, or insights that people may get to through that work. And then you can explain, but actually it's different for every person. So I don't sort of claim I'm going to get you to this because that, that would be too linear. But even if you just explain the starting point and some of the things that happen during the process, that can still communicate the value uh, to the, to the client. So I think it's, it's really understanding about if a client comes to you, how do they articulate where they think they're going to end up? So if, 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 if what they want to do is sleep better, for example, then you need to articulate how you're going to help them work through that. And if it's even possible to get to that point, but a lot of the work in articulating the value is helping the client understand either why their expectations are perfectly matched with what you do way too high for the budget or time or they can achieve or way too low and therefore you need to refer them to someone else or something else. I think if you look at anyone in the eye and you say, you know, I can't guarantee outcomes and thank God I'm not going to try because I know that you wouldn't trust me the minute I told you anything was going to definitely going to happen because you're an intelligent human being and you know that no one other than God, if there is such a thing, could possibly work out what might come for you. And I'm not going to patronise you by suggesting that you're so stupid that you have not worked it out yourself. Uh, So we're going to 
you know, what people need is to be seen, heard, understood, and loved, and not to feel alone. And to be able to speak to those things uh, is more powerful than to be able to articulate a clear outcome. And if you can communicate that in talking about your approach, people will understand the value without needing to know where they're going to end up. I'm going to give you a bit of conflicting opinions on this, I think, Anya. People love to know that there's an outcome. It's much easier to buy something when you have a clear outcome. Or they're buying something else. And some people are buying a process. They're buying a journey. They're buying time to spend with someone else. They're not necessarily wanting an outcome. And maybe those are your customers. So there's something here about the clarity of who you want to work with and what they're buying. And then there's another thing here that's popping up is around responsibility. Who's responsible for the outcome? Just you or also the client? Because if you're just building a brick wall, then you're responsible for the brick wall. But if you're designing something that's going to appeal to their aesthetic sensibilities, then they're responsible to be clear about what those sensibilities are, as well as you being able to interpret them. And if it's a coaching engagement, or like Simon was saying, to be able to sleep better, well, if you watch Netflix until midnight after I've told you to have better sleep hygiene, I'm not going to be able to help you. So there's something here around responsibility, agreeing the roles of responsibility, but also agreeing what are they buying? Are they definitely buying an outcome? Or are they buying a process? And it's perfectly fine, I think, to sell a process. Cool. The last one here is Nicola. Any thought on pricing for friends or family and staying with the worth of what you are offering while steering clear of mates' rates? Oh my God, 100% quadruple the price for family and friends. Nightmare. Don't go there. My answer was going to be along the same lines of uh, family and friends make the worst customers every single time, all days of the week. Not that there's anything wrong with them being your friends and your family, but there's a reason that they're your friends and your family, and that's because they're not your customers. There is obviously overlap, but I personally would always put them towards the back of the queue, <laughs> if you see what I mean. There are obviously ways in which you can help friends and family that don't exert lots of time and effort for you. So, for example, I run a web design agency. My dad has a domain name. I don't charge him to renew his domain name because it costs me a few pounds. It's a way I can help. It's not like you can never work with friends or family. But if my dad was to say, well, could you build me a whole website? They're like, no, absolutely not. Because it's just not how that relationship works. We, we can't have a client relationship. I can't, I can't be impartial. We're just going to wind each other up to the point where it's just not, it, 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 to, to me, it doesn't, it, it, it never works. And the second point I will add is that by default, I would always resist giving any form of discount if you can avoid it, because discounts are only benefiting, they're only reducing your ability to deliver value. Um, if someone is relying on a discount to make the value worthwhile, then the question you should be asking is, well, what bit of the value are you going to take away? So if someone says, well, can you do it cheaper? It's like, well, yeah, I can do it cheaper. Which bit don't you want me to do? To which they'll always say, oh, well, I 
I want you to do all of it. You're like, great. So that's the price for doing all of it. So we can go cheaper, but we have to not do something. That's one way of thinking, but that's a whole, that's another episode is discounting. But generally my advice across the board is don't do discounts. And, um, I would put the time and energy you would spend working with friends and family into finding other clients personally. Um, and, uh, maybe find someone else who you can refer friends and family to in order that they get what they're after and they are helped and supported and loved, but maybe not by you. I'd like to say it's all about, for me, um, how well you can set boundaries and it's also how well you can deal with conflict because that's what it comes down to in the end. Whether they're a family, a friend, or a difficult customer, it's about how do you negotiate challenges when they're not getting what they want. And I think I accept when you're working with family, it's going to be harder because you then have to spend time with them after not being able to get them what they want for the price that they want. And this is for me is then having a very clear conversation at the beginning of a relationship and also what is the complexity of what it is you're going to be doing for them. Because I would have no qualms selling my father a domain name and telling them that's the price. You've got to, if you want me to do it, that's how much it costs. But if it's um, doing something more intricate and complicated that will involve maybe a bit more time and um, significance in terms of the impact that it will have on their lives, should it not go well, then that's, I think, something to consider when you're starting the relationship and having some clear boundaries around that. And also clear considerations of what it means for you to then deal with the aftermath. Thank you, everyone, for bearing with us. I uh, hope you've found something useful and interesting in here. I uh, hope you've got a new perspective on having a pricing philosophy and what it means for your confidence uh, and also the kinds of connections you could make with your customers. If any of this or anything that you have heard over the past six seasons of Happy Pricing anything that um, Ben and I have said that is useful and you would like to, like to dive deeper. If you are really wanting to get more confidence with your pricing and you just don't have the time to do it yourself, but you know if you do that, you're going to get paid better and more. you'll be able to build a more sustainable and effortless business. If that is something you enjoy or something that appeals, then yes, please look into the Happy Pricing course. We'll be starting the next cohort in late September. So... I would uh, encourage you to investigate now before it's too late. And so until, well, maybe Ben will do this instead of me with, with Francis and Simon and whoever else wants to be his playmate next week. Uh, until the next time we speak, um, have a good rest of your week. Thank you very much, Francis. And thank you very much, Simon, for joining us. <laughs>